0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu. Hello, everyone,
1: and good evening. I'd like to welcome you to tonight's panel on Gender and STEM, Insights from the Arab World. This is a part of a two-day symposium that I'm organizing here at NYU Abu Dhabi um, entitled, The STEM Gender Gap, Causes, um, Consequences and Solutions for Academia. Um, So my name is Kirsten Sadler-Edepli and I'm a biologist and a faculty member here at NYU Abu Dhabi. And uh, I put together this symposium because I, as an American woman scientist, am very aware of the data from my own country where women are underrepresented in most areas of STEM and academia. So, um, And I want to tell you, um, I want to start this uh, evening um, before I get into the introductions of our panelists, really setting the stage for what the discussion is um, to come. So I'll tell you a bit of an anecdote from my own history. And then, um, we get to hear, um, from our panelists. Um, so, uh, I was raised um, going to an all-girls high school and then to an all-women's college. And so when I was training as a biologist, I didn't know that there was any disparity in science or STEM at all, because all of the physics majors were women, all the math majors were women, all the pre-med students were women, and all the pre-engineers were women. So when I got out of my undergraduate education and I went to graduate school, I really started seeing things in a new light. So... I um, I entered Harvard Medical School as a graduate student just 40 years after the first woman was appointed a faculty member there, and 30 years before they uh, after they accepted their first graduate student in my division. So that either means that I am very old, or that Harvard Medical School came to the game of gender e- equality very late. And um, I hope that you agree with me that it's the latter. Um, so. Um, so in fact, um, uh, Harvard Medical School accepted their first woman graduate student just the year before the Civil Rights Movement was, uh, Civil Rights Act was signed. So even though my graduate mentor at Harvard was a woman and she was a full professor in the department, um, all the other professors, full professors in the department were men. And most of the graduate students were men in my field. Um, and certainly all of the hotshot scientists that were traveling the globe and getting printed up in the New York Times were all men. So when I graduated with a fresh PhD and was on the job market, I went to Turkey where I had my first academic job interview and I went to the the chair's department and in Turkey many of the names are not gendered. So you don't know if someone with the name of this chair is a man or a woman. So I went to the chair's office and I knocked on the door and asked the woman sitting there, may I please see the chair of the department? And she said, it's me. Come have a seat. So I ran up against my own gender bias, assuming that the chair of that department was going to be a man because that's what I saw as a graduate student. It wasn't. In fact, I I joined, I was the 10th woman to join the Department of Molecular Biology as the 10th woman to join that department. Um, And I really was surprised to see that women were succeeding at levels that they simply were not at the place that I had trained. So that really opened my eyes to how gender parity is very different in science around the world. (laughs) So today we heard about some of the uh, factors in America that influence the perceptions of women in science, their perceptions of being brilliant or accomplished, as well as how um, programs in other parts of the world, predominantly in Muslim countries, are addressing a very different reality. So, um, so today, um, tonight, we're going to continue on this theme and we have some very distinguished panelists here that are going to talk about um, uh, women in, or gender in STEM in the Arab world, because as I've learned, talking about women is not uh, uh, necessarily the main topic of discussion. So I'd like to introduce um, our, um, our Panelists, I'll start with the one who traveled the farthest, um, and that is Dr. Jennifer Olmstead. She grew up in Beirut, Lebanon, and she also lived in Palestine for a number of years. She is currently a professor of economics and director of the Middle East and Arabic programs, as well as a social entrepreneurship semester at Drew University in America. She previously served as the gender advisor at the UN Population Fund um, and uh, she completed her training in foreign service from Georgetown University, and both her master's in agricultural economics and her PhD in economics from the University of California, Davis. Dr. Olmsted was a guest editor um, of and also contributing author to um, a 2014 issue of Feminist Economics, focusing on gender and economics in Muslim communities. She has published a numerous other articles, a range of books and volumes, and uh, um, in a, a list of distinguished. Um, Uh, journals. Her current project, focusing on the successes and challenges facing um, Arab women uh, in tech fields, is an extension of her early work focusing on gendered employment um, outcomes in various global contexts. Her partner on this project is Dr. Sana Ode. She's a clinical professor, faculty liaison for global programming of computer science at Courant Institute of Mathematical Sciences at NYU, and also an affiliate faculty here at NYU Abu Dhabi. She's an um, uh, she, here, she was the founding member of the Computer Science um, Program, um, and she continues to come back to us every year. She's uh, currently compor- con- coordinating a comprehensive study on women in computing in the Arab world, along with her collaborator, Dr. Olmsted. The goal of the study is to explore the enrollment of women in computing, the opportunities, as well as the diverse challenges facing women in computing in the Arab world. The study focuses on women in academia, both students and faculty, so very relevant to our discussions from today, industry and entrepreneurs. Um, she's a proponent of women in technology, and she is the founding and chair of the conference on women in computing in the Arab world, which is extremely popular. She's founder and chair of the Arab women in computing, founder and chair of the annual NYU Abu Dhabi international hackathon for social good in the Arab world, chair of the annual New York city girls, computer science and engineering conference, and many, many more accolades. Our third, um, uh, panelist is, um, uh, Dr. Marina Hamed Kazim Al. Bastaki, and she is a a physician um, and she comes from a family of doctors from Dubai. Um, Her father uh, served at the Ministry of Health for over 30 years as head of the radiology department, and he was the first UA national TV radio English newscaster in the 1970s. Her mother also in the medical profession as a nurse, and she's been serving in the UAE since um, uh, since the 1970s. So, um, Uh, she she pursued studies in medicine at a time when there were limited options for um, medical education here in the UAE. And in fact, for her, she had no option because she was uh, too young to attend medical school here. So she took the bold move of going to Slovakia at the age of 16, where she learned um, a foreign language and then enrolled in the medical school there. And she was there for seven years, graduating with an MD then returning here to um, the UAE, to Dubai where she completed her internship at Rashid Hospital and then moved to uh, uh, Sheikh Khalifa Medical Center where she served as a physician in internal medicine, radiology, and family medicine. She moved to the Abu Dhabi Blood Bank in 2010 where she serves as a uh, medical practitioner and she is part of the NYU Abu Dhabi family as she participates in the UAE Healthy Study. Studies here. And uh, our fourth... um, uh, panelist is the one who had to travel the least because she came, she's, her office is right around the corner from mine here on this campus. Hoda Al Khazami is a currently a research assistant professor here at NYU Abu Dhabi and the director of the Center of Cybersecurity. She's an engineer and she has served in different posts for research and development in cybersecurity and cryptology for the past few years. She headed the Department of Research and Development for Cybersecurity and Cryptology in different national initiatives in the UAE along with her associations to different security initi- initiatives nationally and internationally. Al-Khazmi, uh, Dr. Al-Khazmi has, uh, has a specific ep- expertise in cryptology, crypto analysis, constructing and validating security hardware and software components, uh, constructing trusted security architectures for, for different environments um, in different products for the respective ind- industries. She received her Ph.D. in cryptoanalysis from Denmark Technical University, Um, and her current research interests include space, aerospace, UAV security, constructing and analyzing cryptogenic primitives, validating and investigating links between different cryptoanalytic approaches, and utilizing cryptographic primitives in different cybersecurity architectures as an internet of things and big data analysis. So you see, we have quite a distinguished panel and that re- has a long, range, uh, uh, a long uh, list of accolades, and the um, composition of the panel I uh, hope will be of interest to all of you because we have a mix of. Very esteemed researchers who have been studying the, um, the global picture of women in computing in the Arab world, uh, as well as a woman who's been working in computing in the Arab world, a woman who's been working in um, engineering and cybersecurity here, and a, a prominent physician. So um, I would like to start by just inviting each of our panelists to um, introduce their perspective on how gender um, impacts uh, STEM here in the Arab world.
2: I was going to say, let's start by the furthest. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, Christian, for putting this panel together and this symposium together uh, and bringing us on, on uh one united front to address uh, this very critical issue at the moment. It's uh, certainly picking a global hype. Um, Can you repeat the question again, please?
1: Oh, yes, of course. Sorry. So um, can you just um, briefly uh, tell us and and the audience about what is your um, perspective on this topic of gender and STEM in the Arab world? So you can speak to it either from your experience or from the data that you've collected.
2: So I represent the data on this panel. I think Jennifer and Sanaa, they represent the research on this data. (laughs) So from my perspective, um, um, I come from a UAE, uh, from here, from UAE. And based on the conversation that you had, in the morning sessions, if you've been lucky enough to join us in the morning sessions for this symposium, UAE has a unique kind of structure when it comes to support of of, of women and gender, uh, women in STEM in general. We beat the statistics somehow, and I don't know why. Everybody's asking me, like, uh, like every few years, I would get a journalist who's asking, or somebody who's running a study in UAE and is asking, why do you think we're having these numbers? And I think that. Uh, we do have a generic, the um, uh, undefined structure that organically pushes for, uh, because we're a young country and we have to build this knowledge capital and we are on an agenda and we're running a race. So everybody has to contribute. Everybody means uh, women and men equivalently. So we have this task force that has been initiated from the top uh, down, I would say, from the governmental level to, to all other uh, architecture pieces in the country that, that motivates everyone to just go ahead and then do your best in STEM fields or other fields. So you get to see in universities 70%, I think 76% I was reading the Economist report that has been released uh, by certain um, uh, research institute here in UAE. Uh, on the numbers of women in in STEM, in UAE. And they said like 76% of university graduates are women in comparison to the rest of the percentages. And we get to see these percentages more in UAE just because I think we are a young country that has a certain agenda of establishing knowledge and we cannot afford to miss anybody out of this statistics. It happens that maybe because men, they have their own uh, responsibility, Schemes running in and uh, into into play so they have to choose maybe going for a certain, um, you know, the uh, work discipline rather than joining a university. That's that's
1: my thank you, Hulusana.
3: um Thank you, Kirsten, for organizing this uh, wonderful uh, symposium and also for inviting us. Um, uh, it's it's really for me. It's it's wonderful to be here and to be talking about this study because this actually study stemmed from. Uh, coming to NYU Abu Dhabi. So I'm based in NYU, New York. Um, And uh, when I came here, when we started New York University of Abu Dhabi, um, so I came here to set up the department. And I started to notice that, and like I said, I'm based in New York. And in New York, basically in NYU, New York, my students are, you know, uh, we have definitely an issue as if you were here, I'm repeating the statistics, um, about the U.S. So in the U.S. And, and most countries in Europe, the statistics in terms of STEMs, and, uh, and I'll just focus on computer science, it's nearing 20%. And actually, um, it's it's devastating because in the 80s, computer science was one of the promising, actually, fields because the percentages were almost in 84, nearing 40%, more than any other sciences. So it really took a dip after that. and we ha- we, And it's been really hard to recover. And then, and and so there is a lot of research and a lot, a lot of interest from companies now to try to understand why does, why is this happening and try to um, try to come up with uh, uh, causes and and fixes to to this issue. And so coming here um, to build the computer science department, I wanted us, I mean, we're an American university, but we wanted to collaborate with the region and form a collaboration projects. And I started talking to people, but I started from my visit, uh, visits and collaboration with uh, other departments in the region that I would walk in, for example, I went, I was invited to conference in Tunisia. And the um, the chairs of the departments are women uh, in engineering and computer science in Egypt the same way. And then I started to notice that women are, you know, there are a lot of women in these classes or in these conferences. So I actually... Um, Ask Abu Dhabi. I became very curious about this, and I asked NYU Abu Dhabi to uh, support a conference, which was in 2012, a workshop, actually, and I invited people uh, from the region, um, scholars on computer science, and uh, from around 15 countries, and that was the first time that everybody was actually shocked that this is a question, like, you know, are we really women interested in computer science? And everybody was saying, you know, most of our classes from the different countries are women. So I also looked into research, and at that time, there wasn't really any research uh, about this issue in the region. And there were, uh, every once in a while, I'll find research about, there was a study, like an article about how only 3% of women are in, a, in, IT, in in the UAE, for example. And I'm like, this cannot be. And I would go to computer science conference. And in computer science, we have a large now consortium and organization for women in computing and also research and, and really very well funded from company like the Grace Hopper Conference. And I would go there and people will be talking about how, um, for example, um, actually the State Department has started a program. To bring an Arab um, from the region and during that they're reporting on this program they're saying they had a, a they had a, an image of um, uh, a woman that's veiled and they're saying we had to raise uh, we need to raise money for people because actually in the Middle East they don't allow them to have uh, in the Arab world, they don't allow them to have um, smartphones or phones. So so it's all these stereotypes about the region that I encounter when I go abroad. And meanwhile, we're talking about um, women in computer science and how we can uh, um, attract them and inspire them in this field. And then when I start to talk to the leadership, because I am on the leadership of this conference, that actually this is, it seems like this is not the international pattern because when I talk to women from Turkey or India, because I started to really you know, form connection... And then they say to me, oh, it's because women are oppressed and they stay home and this is a private thing. So I really decided because of that also, and because of, I personally became interested in this topic, I wanted to do a research. So thanks so much to NYU Abu Dhabi, Hillary Ballin, and the leadership for supporting the research because it's becoming a really, I think, a contribution to the international debate about this issue.
4: Thank you, Sana. Jennifer. So can you hear me? Um, I actually wasn't going to talk about my own personal story, but I th- actually think it's relevant because I'm in economics. And economics is actually one of the fields from the data you presented this morning that looks very similar to the STEM fields. Um, when I got my PhD, 33% of my graduating class were women. And now that was, well, I don't want to say quite when I got my PhD, but it was it was quite a while. It was in the 90s. And that number has not budged in economics. It's still about 33%. So economics is another discipline that just does not seem to be welcoming to women. And I started in agricultural economics, which was actually even worse. So, so my own experience was one of really struggling in graduate school. But um, when And I've done a lot of work on women in the Middle East and, and similar challenges that Sanat has talked about is that people always have these stereotypes and they... Whenever you give them a statistic, they're going to kind of interpret it in the worst possible way, right? So you give them a positive statistic and they're like, oh, but that's because of this, right? And so, as Sanat said, one of the stereotypes is, oh, women do computing because it, it allows them to stay home. Well, guess what? One of the findings from our survey is that women do computing because they really want to be social, they want to work in groups, it's a way of giving back to society. Nobody told us it's because I work from home. This was not the kinds of answers we got. But these are the stereotypes that you that you encounter when you start to talk about Arab women succeeding in something. So, um, So what we did was we went out and we designed our own survey and we're talking about women in computing. We knew that we could get a good sample by just putting it on the internet, right? This is not a group that's not, Tech savvy. And so we did a a survey that we just launched, and we got almost a thousand responses to the survey, and we have some really rich data from that. In addition to that, Sanat has been collecting um, education she's been calling institutions in many, many Arab countries and getting um, regist- you know, how many women are registered as computer science majors, how many are graduating. So we have really good institutional data. We have this survey. And then we've also been doing in-depth um, interviews, which has been really amazing because the other the thing about um, this field, it's a very young field. So a lot of the women we're talking to are young and unmarried, but you also have some older women who've been in the field since its inception. and And especially those women tell really interesting stories about what it's like to go into computer science in the early days and what it was like, you know, some of them, they don't even want to talk about the computer science. They really want to talk about what it's like to be a woman entrepreneur and the challenges that you face when you go out into the global workplace. And I think one of the biggest surprises for me was that it was often when they got into global contexts that they would face some of their first challenges. Um, They would meet, uh, they would have a boss from Germany who just didn't take them seriously, for example. And this was, you know, they're like, wait, I, like people have been taking me seriously. And then suddenly I get into a European context or something like that. Um, and, and I'm not taken seriously anymore. So the global aspect of this was a, an aspect we didn't expect to come out, but it was really interesting. And I, I can talk more about some of the global stuff in the follow-up, if that would be of interest.
1: I mean, Thank you, Jennifer.
0: Hi, good evening, everyone. So I come from a background of a family of doctors. Um, my father's auntie uh, was probably uh, the first to have left home and have gone to pursue her studies in India. She's a very well-known doctor. She was the first local woman uh, to deliver babies in UAE. Her name is Dr. Zainab Kazim. Maybe you have heard of her. Um, and that's not the only one we've got as well. Um, other doctors, first breast cancer surgeon as well, Dr. Um, Hurya Kazim. And uh, I have as well Hala who who she's one of the first women to support uh, many women and um, as a counselor to bring them up in life. So we were like six of us and my dad always wanted to pursue studies. So he encouraged all of us to become doctors. That was his dream. And so his dream was fulfilled. So all of us became doctors. I guess it was in us from the very beginning because... Um, we loved humanity. We loved doing good for others. My mom always taught us to be respectful to everyone and if anyone needed help. So we had that, you know, basis from the very beginning. And then when it came to studying medicine, I loved it because I wanted to save lives, you know. Um, And I looked at it as not just on paper, but something as a part of a person. So I'm so glad that I got support from my family, So it was hard in the beginning to have to venture out. And it was my first time to travel out of UAE because I was brought up um, in UAE. So coming from a private school, we were mixed with other genders. So it wasn't so bad, but we were limited. Like we were not allowed to talk. Like they would be like on the other side of the room and we'd be on the other side. We'd be together, but we wouldn't be allowed to talk. So it was a little bit different. But when I went to university, we were all mingling and talking. So I found it very strange and tried to adapt to the situation. But um, it was okay later on. And then when I got into my career, it gave me that boost that, you know, I see male patients as well. And then my uncle told me, listen, you can't say this is male. You can't examine. You're a doctor. So do it. So I was like, okay. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I guess that kind of made it easy for me once I felt like, yes, I'm there as a professional. So it didn't make me think and, and I'd always approach and say, if you would allow me so that they wouldn't get offended. So I see a lot of females entering in that kind of field, whether it's nursing or in medicine. I think it's maybe because they have that heart, you know, um, that they want to take care of people. So you find more females than males in, in clinics and hospitals. Uh, I, I don't see many local men, male. They, you would find, but very, very few, uh, that they would pursue either in emergency departments, few would be into family medicine, but not as much as females.
1: Thank you very much so I'm going to ask a few questions of our panelists and then I'm going to open it up to the audience to ask some questions um, uh, in about ten minutes or so so um, one of the things that I um, have been wondering about and we discussed today in the symposium the perception of um, women and femininity and whether or not that's at conflict with being a successful engineer, which is perhaps seen as a man's job or a, a perception of being um In medicine in America, being a surgeon is a man's job, being a pediatrician is a woman's job, that there are very gendered jobs in America, even in STEM. And um, there is a conflict between being um, feminine and being also in a man's job. So, being a feminine surgeon or being a feminine mechanical engineer are at conflict in identity. So, I wondered if any of you could speak either from the broader research or from your own personal experience to whether or not you experience this conflict, whether the positions you just mentioned that, you know, this maybe uh, being a physician is a more seen as a gendered, as a, a Uh, woman's role. But um, I wondered if perhaps from the research, anything came out or from your experience in engineering, there's a a perception of um, a conflict there between choosing or is that maybe the answer? Is it maybe that it's not gendered and therefore women feel more comfortable going into um, this job?
3: So um I mean in the US I think we there is a lot of research and from my experience that it is like a men's world in in computer science and technology so it's very obvious my experience has been that um it didn't really hinder me in any way I just feel like I'm an assertive and myself I didn't have to change anything it, just happened that I'm in a supportive environment. Men and women actually been, and also especially men, have been mentors for me in my environment. So I have to say that actually, um, for me, I haven't encountered um, in my profession to feel like this is, that I feel like as a woman, I don't belong. Sometimes in the conferences, especially in the US, it is you walk into rooms and you see um, a lot of men. But I just personally, for me, it didn't... uh, um, it didn't have an impact. Some of my students, of course, um, do have issues. And that's why we have in the U.S. now a lot of, in most of the university, women in computing clubs to re- try to inspire and retain um, these women that start to go into the field in the beginning and then they uh, retreat. When uh, From our research Uh, And especially from the survey and the interviews and the conferences that we've done, we've done already five. uh, One in um, Algeria, three here at NYU Abu Dhabi, and one in Lebanon. And the last one we had 600. And from the research that we've done, um, and as I said, the data points to the majority of the Arab world, um, I mean, percentages, I would say uh, the lowest is 30%. And it can go as high as 70% for women in computer science and computer engineering. And in the sciences, also um, uh, the highest, I think, numbers are in the UAE and Egypt in the world of women in science. And when we ask about attitudes in our survey, and and the women would say um, they they don't feel at all. It's a it's a, I don't they don't feel it's a, a man. They're actually, it's very strange for them to ask that question because they feel that the majority of the class are women. There are a lot of women. They felt encouraged by their parents. They felt that um, the teachers don't treat the male different than the male. Uh, the faculty also, they felt like they feel like their salary is the same. They don't feel like 50%, for example, don't say that there is discrimination in the field. There is there is positivity you feel among the faculty and among the students. So. Among the students, I think, enrolled in computer science, they don't feel that it is a gendered field. But the problem happens in the Arab world when they go transfer to the industry. Then, first of all, they're not hired. The top students, sometimes they're not hired because of discrimination or bias. They think, oh, the woman is going to get married, have kids. This is a 24-hour job. They'll hire the male component. So there are a lot of women that would sit there for years without a job. And then what we're finding out that the women now, what they do is they turn to um, entrepreneurship. They get funding and they start their own company. So this is really something positive that's happening. Thank you.
4: Jennifer, would you like to add? To yeah. That? Um, just to expand on what Sanat said, I think, so we asked the question, do you, do you feel that men and women are treated equally in the field? And what's interesting is the students, it was about 70% of students felt that they were treated equally. So a very high proportion did not feel discrimination in, in their educational experience. But when we get to The professionals, it goes to 50% feel that there's inequality um, in the the area. And then when you get to entrepreneurs, it goes up to 70%. So you can see a huge amount of variation in terms of the perceptions of gender um, inequality. The other thing that's sort of interesting is that age... As you might suspect, younger people are less likely to feel it. And that could just be that you haven't experienced as much of life yet. And so you just haven't faced discrimination. But what happens is that it gets gradually, um, as you get older, it goes up until you get to the oldest cohort. And then it actually drops. And, and I suspect that, again, the older women, they really had to be tough to make it. And they may not have even perceived any gender discrimination because they were just kind of the toughest people to make it. So you do see kind of a nonlinear. Um, Relationship. Um, I think there's a study that we didn't do, but I think has been really useful too, that looked at 49 different countries and people's self concept of whether they can do math. And what they found is that in the majority of countries, girls have a lower self concept than boys. In the Arab world, and you can see then that there's variation, in the Arab world, About half of the countries in the survey, women did not have a different self-concept. So that's already very exciting because it means that girls don't go into school thinking that they're worse at math. But in about half the Arab countries, you do see that. And so math self-concept is not the only thing that explains it because there's variation across the Arab world. And I mentioned this in the morning, Iran is one of the few countries that girls have a higher self-concept of math than boys, which is a very fascinating Um, outcome. So I think just, you know, there's so many factors that go into this. It's sort of what you were socialized as a child, but then as you go through the educational and the employment system, you have different experiences and that obviously shapes your confidence and things like that.
1: Thank you. So I would like to um, give a chance for one more question before we open it up to the audience. And um, uh, perhaps, um, you know, Hoda, maybe you can um, start the, the answers to this one. So um, I was wondering if you could talk about your experience about how girls and women, um, what, just building off what Jennifer said, how girls and women are socialized and supported to go into maybe not just STEM, but the career of their choice um, in um the Arab world, or if you just want to talk about your experience in the UAE, as opposed to what um, they um, perceive is expected of them or where they're not allowed to go.
2: Okay, so I'm going to talk about my personal experience here, and it's not a formalized study, so we cannot generalize it or build a a model based on it. Um, uh, So um, what I've seen that because of the cultural Uh, model that we have here in UAE Uh, the uh, the males they're expected to support a family by the age of 20 so they would choose to go for a career rather than or go for an educational opportunity that has a salary like a salaried educational opportunity so they will not pick education as their first um, target while the ladies in this community, um, they would choose education, because for them, it means sustainability and it means independence. I don't know. They equate independence, they equate. Um, and, and I based this based I was a director of a center I ha- uh, for cybersecurity with the government, and I had a sample of 50 people with me in the, in the center. And whenever I offer a project, the ladies would hesitate. To pick the project because they think that they need to acquire the knowledge, acquire the degree, acquire everything to just go for the project. And, and the male population within the, the staff, they would be like, we're going for it. Even if they know 1% or 2% on the subject, they will do risk taken and they will do the discovery analysis on it. Although when it comes to, to commitment on the task, I would see... More commitment coming uh, from the ladies' population. I had one example of a lady who, or uh, two actually, who were like heavily pregnant. Nine, That's it, she's going to deliver this week. And we had a project submission uh, for a very high uh, industry partner within the defense industry here in UAE. The project was... Uh, has a value of 50 million dirhams and it was on stake and we have to make sure everything is is supported. The last person who walked out of that meeting room was that lady and she gave five extra hours of her time for this. The next day she delivered and then she sent me a message. Like she delivered and she sent me a message. I hope everything went well with the submission. (laughs) By the way, I just had a baby. So... um, and i i don't get that a lot like this is this sense of commitment sense of responsibility working on the longer terms is what motivates i think ladies within this cultural model to join uh, such a field the same the the men might have the same kind of requirements sense of whatever providing for a family and sense of responsibility but their choices to to get to that Destination is different. So they would choose a career rather than choosing an education for this.
1: Thank you, Marina. Wanted to know if you uh, could add to
0: that a little bit about my personal uh, life. Actually, while I was um, working, I was trying to try to do my uh, residency and study further, and I got into uh, marriage issues. And then I had to decide: it's either my kids or it's either my studies. I had to sacrifice. So I decided to sacrifice for my kids. So I moved on from there. Um, My family live in Dubai. I live alone here in Abu Dhabi. So it was pretty hard for me to manage changing their schools, changing the job. That's why you see I've been going from one um, department to another. I do love learning, but at the same time I had to find you know, a work balance, work and home balance. So it was pretty hard. So I have two girls, um, their father passed away like last year. So basically I'm managing all their expenses, um, taking care of their education as well, trying to be a good doctor, being there for people. So basically have two jobs. So as soon as I'm done with the, the first job, come back home, rush, 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 see their homework and make sure that they excel in their future because it's It's their time. My time, probably, I had to give it up for them. Because in the end, I know that I want to see them excel because now there's lots of opportunities with different studies. So I may not be able to help them much into that, but at least I can support them and make sure that they're doing okay. So
1: I'd like to say that you're doing a fantastic job with your beautiful (laughs) daughter here in the front row. Thank you.
0: And I'm sure a lot of women out there can do the same. It takes a lot of guts, but yeah.
1: So um with that thank you very much and I'd like to open um up to questions from the audience and um what I'd like to do is to um to take a few questions and then we'll let the um we'll let the uh, panelists decide yes
5: Thanks for this panel. Um, it's been such a glorious day, so thanks for having this conference and, and this, this panel. Um, what's striking to me as someone that studies gender work and sort of high-status professional careers in India is how many of you in, at some point in time during this day has said, I never thought this would happen, but it did, right? Like, it never happened to me. I was an exception, but it still happened. And I think that's fascinating because we know that this happens to all women, right? Like we think it, it's not about us, it's about a larger structure. And so I think each of you has done such a great job in like using that individual context to tell us more about the structure. Um, I want to push on one thing uh, that I hope ties together all your stories, but I'm, I've, I've been thinking about this in my own work and I'm wondering if it might be a useful construct, um, is what are the career reference that people are using, right? So I I use that term in terms of thinking about well, I think I'm doing well, but that's because I'm comparing myself to uh, another Indian woman who sort of didn't go to Harvard, didn't go to get a law school job, didn't isn't teaching at NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, but if I'm comparing myself with a man who also did those same things, it might seem very different. So whether we feel happy or not with our sta- status, like in, if women feel happy or not, and the way they're reporting things like um, how many people feel that they haven't been discriminated against in school or after might be a function of who they're comparing themselves with. And that's a useful model to think through some of the data that we're seeing, right? So even when we're looking at positive outcomes, one way maybe to think about it is who are we referring them to? And I'm wondering if any of you had thoughts about that and whether your data could speak to it. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
4: We have another question. No? Yes.
5: Thanks. Um,
6: It's the comment that was made about the work-life balance and you gave your story, which thank you very much for that. I just think that is not work-life balance. That is how how on earth can we achieve this thing that we're supposed to achieve called work-life
1: balance? And it strikes me that you, all of you, are running ragged to do the work thing to do the life thing and to do everything else. So isn't it a misnomer, this idea about work-life balance, especially for women? Yes, I love that question. Thank you. Yes, we have a question down here in the front. <laughs> oh. No. oh, okay. Two <laughs> yes, two for-
6: yeah, um, this was very nice, and I really loved um, the backgrounds and all the introspective uh, insight that you guys have been giving. I wanted to ask about the quotas. Um, do you think that enforcing quotas on um, women education? Do you think that it would have a positive outcome on the numbers that are desired for getting women into these fields, in terms of study and in terms of work? And like you said, there's a disparity between the quotas across, you know, different parts of the world. So you see it here, for instance, the, they're different in the U.S. and Europe. But um, in, in things like enforcing quotas on on boards, for instance, having more women, it's in Europe, I think it was about thirty something percent or forty something that was trying to be enforced and and you see uh, phenomena like um, you know, they, they, women that are put in, be being put there as, as just um, figures, but they don't have active roles. So does infor- putting quotas or enforcing quotas in terms of policy as well, how do we work around this issue? And what are the targets? I mean, and do we want to achieve a global target? What is,
1: what is the... Uh- Thank you. One more question here in the front. Uh,
4: oh what job in stem has the most women
1: that's a great question
4: in which country in, which country?
1: <laughs> in the uae okay um <laughs> okay yes yeah, so we'll, um so we we'll, uh let, let's just um address these um these questions here and um uh I, I love the work-life balance one um, and the quotas one as well is something that I do think about. Um, I would like to preface the answer. I think I'd like to take that one first, if we might, um, because we've been talking today about diversity. And I think that um, I really like the way Dr. Coleman put it this morning. She said diversity is not just putting a bunch of different people in the room, but it's about that interaction. So um, I think that while we look at numbers, we're scientists, we love those numbers, and that's really helpful. I think there is a danger for the issue of quotas and just saying, oh, we've achieved gender parity, let's move on, because it's not necessarily just about having those, um, I think, like, for example, the, um, the image that you brought up before of having boys and girls in the room, but they're not talking to each other and they're not working on a project and sharing their ideas so that's perhaps not the gender parity we're looking for because the idea is to enhance interaction and to generate better ideas so um, so that's my perspective on the quotas but I'd like to ask if any um, if any of you
4: have a, a, a quota answer there. I mean, There's a really rich literature in political science, which talks about quotas in the political sphere. And I think that that's an area where it really makes sense to have quotas. And I'll I'll give you the reasons why is that you need to pipeline. And it is true that in the beginning, some of these women just get into these positions because they're women. But eventually what happens is once you've had quotas for a while, you really get a pipeline of women who are very good policy makers. And there's huge amounts of evidence that in the policy arena, if women don't have a seat at the table, different types of policies get passed. When we get into occupational or educational quotas, it's much more complicated because you don't want to force people. Like when you're talking about access to political power, that seems like something that people want. But when you're talking about like telling people you can't study this and you can study that, it gets much trickier, um, and it, yeah, I mean, the U.S. is a place where there's we don't have quotas on anything. We're so free market; it's like pick and and I have issues with that because I think we should have political quotas. We have one of the the, the U.S. ranks as one of the lowest countries in the world in terms of women's political participation. But I do think we need to we need to change the structures so that you know, if women don't feel comfortable in STEM fields, forcing them into STEM fields is not going to, you know, you have to solve other problems in order to make that work. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, are we ever going to have a world where there's total gender parity? I mean, if you think about pediatrics, for example, it does seem like women really kind of prefer that than men. So Do we really want to legislate it to the degree that, you know, that, but I I do think that there are, you know, there are some, I mean, frankly, right now in liberal arts colleges in the States, we have male quotas because what's happened is we have so many female students who want to go to liberal arts colleges and we don't have enough males. The men get in with basically affirmative action. They, They don't, they're not really performing as well. So it's also tricky because, you know, you kind of want, I could see that being, you know, you really have to look at the situation rather than than make a blanket statement. Do quotas work or not? It's it's very specific to the to the you know the question you're trying to resolve. Would be my answer. But I know UAE is just starting to have some quotas. Is that right? Yeah.
1: So thank you, um, Jennifer, for that. So I think Hoda, I will ask you to answer Essen's question about the. the job in the UAE that has the STEM job that has the most uh, women,
2: yes, Thank you for so much, Essan, for the question. Because uh, I looked at the report that was produced by the Economist in collaboration with Mohammed bin Rashid uh, School of uh, Governance, and the statistics that was produced in 2014 said IT and engineering, but the updated statistics for 2017 said green technology. So you would find more people working toward green technology and, you know, alternative source of energy.
1: So there is a very interesting question about work-life balance. And um, I think that that comes up in any um, discussion about working women, whether it's in science, banking, um, teaching, you name it, there's um, uh, always an issue, as, as is um, for men as well, because um, uh, some of us are very fortunate to have very involved fathers for our children. So um, there's a balance on the male side as well. But I wondered if Marina, you could speak to that a bit.
0: Well, obviously not everything is in books. You know, you have to learn learn it the hard way in order to to balance um, so, it took me a while actually to to sort out my my life and and private life as well to see how could I balance taking care of my kids um and this as well not losing my job because that is you know I'm a breadwinner. I have to provide for the family so um as well, I do take care of my parents um because they're elderly, so I've got quite much on my hands um, so I worked my way basically. Um, taking a lot of risks, buying a house, which I knew I may have trouble paying for. But I took that step and I said, you know, God is great. God is with me. I'm not alone. And it was pretty hard. But then slowly, slowly, and and I'm so grateful for my manager because she was very, very supportive. So when I moved in for the blood bank, I had a change of of job, change of um, environment. So I wasn't around my peers because I didn't want them to talk about, you know, what I went through. And I just wanted to cut free a bit just to, you know, to sort things out. And having this new job in the blood bank made me pretty busy. And the good thing is that the hours was flexible. So I was very thankful. So then I worked around that and having my manager's support as well. She understood my situation, so she was very supportive. So I managed between work and, and home. Um, sometimes you would get this unfortunate times that your kids would be sick or that they would need you and you'd have to take time off to do it. But it's a sacrifice, I guess, all mothers should.
1: Yes, yes, I've experienced that myself. Um, and so, um, and then the last question about um, what is the um, point of comparison for um, women, perhaps um, Sana or Jennifer, you could speak of um, You know, women who are... Um, Appearing um, successful or self uh, describing successful, who are they comparing themselves to? And um, perhaps even if I could broaden that a bit and say, how do we define success? So in academics, success is all, often defined by a clearly clear metric how many papers you published, how many grant dollars you bring in, how many conference you know, proceedings or, um, and then of course, the famous, um, you know, course evaluations. How are you rated by your students? Um, But there are more, there's more ways to define success than metrics. So I wondered if you might speak to that question about the comparative
4: group.
3: I totally agree with you, Shweta. I think that even when we talk, sometimes we talk lightly about um, our experiences, about our success because we are very pleased with ourselves because we didn't really expect to go that far, and all of a sudden we did, and we're just so happy and we're, you know, um, uh, excited about it. But at the same time, if we have, if you compare it to a male partner that started with the same track, they're probably much more far ahead in their career in terms of leadership and so on and so forth. So, um, so yeah, definitely, especially when we when we model that for the research it's um it, it's it's been on our mind the whole time because as these women fill out these surveys what are they you know um hiding what are they not saying what are they also the perception because we're you know how we perceive ourselves how we perceive our career and others also uh, perceiving us but it's definitely something that we thought about that's why we asked the questions in the survey in so many ways in the interview uh, we we asked it uh ask it very uh different ways uh but yeah it is is very different between men and women. For example, it starts very early in research where uh, girls in sixth grade outperform uh, boys in math. And they, if you ask them in the States, uh, this is uh, in the States, if you ask them, for example, well, would you pursue math? Uh, and they would say, no, we're not good enough. But the C, the, the, the boy who got a C will say, yeah, I would be a good scientist. So so this is definitely starts the, the cues that they get as from the culture, from uh, uh, others uh, evaluating them. I, mean, I I, I get this a lot. Oh, you don't look like a scientist. Oh, you're not. The, you know, so so these perceptions um, always exist in our, um, you know, in, in circles we move and especially as high up. So as women, we feel like we tend to be happy at where we are. Yet, men, they're always, you know, they, they have, you know, in, in their mind because they've seen a lot of role models and they can, you know, they don't have these barriers. But for us, as we break them, we feel like very good at ourselves. So, so it's it's relative and it's a very important question
1: thank you. Um I think there was one more question here in the audience.
5: Yes. Um thank you for the talk. It was really uh, insightful to hear
1: all these stories. Um so I think that uh, you guys really mentioned and talk about how um their the numbers are consistent in many areas and like women are not represented more even though we're progressing as a society and whatnot. But uh, I think that to have more success stories like you guys here in front of us, um, it's important that we kind of raise awareness at a younger level. So like at the first, like coming into college, we don't want the um, uh, women to just not have STEM as an option to begin with and not before even going into it and dropping out. So how do you think we can
5: tackle that? Or um, do you think that it's, that's, a, that's a solution? Thank you.
2: So um, I don't know if you noticed that most of the questions we've got, we answered it from a biased perspective. Um, the question about work-life balance, it's totally biased perspective because the sample we have is given the current model that we work with. The current model does not address differences a male and female, that's it. They have to provide equally. It doesn't address that the fact that the female, she has an extra job on the side. A male has that job as well, but maybe the involvement. <laughs> yeah. So again, uh, um, the same thing with the question for career references, the whole system is biased. starting from, from childhood. A girl should buy coloring uh, pens and the boy will buy a Lego Think a simple, assuming the analytical skill of a boy is. Of course, I agree with you. Not no, my daughter, that's not going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> yeah, so I would say, and even for legislations, uh, inducing rules and laws to have a quota happening within the system is not going to fix it because maybe you're jeopardizing quality. This, this is something we addressed today with Lindsay in the uh, research session. Um, and so the, I would say that the the, the the key point is fixing the perceptions, as you have said, fixing awarenesses from the get-go, making sure that you build a proper model that will address this gender balance and in a, in a, in a better way that we are doing at the moment. We have to be careful about the assumptions we're making when we're building these research models or we're building additional uh, whatever research directions.
1: So I would like to thank you. I think we're out of time for questions and comments now. However, I do invite you all to come back tomorrow. Um, If you are interested in this um, topic of the pipeline, essentially, we have an excellent um, discussion tomorrow during a workshop. And tomorrow we're here to discuss the practical solutions to the STEM gender gap that is um, largely plaguing um, the West as well as um, the Um, Southeast Asia so um, with that I would really like to thank our panelists you really are inspiring and um, have such valuable perspectives so thank you for sharing it those with us and thank you to the audience for being here please join us for the reception
0: you've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute you'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.